Howdy, and welcome to the Six-Gun Justice Podcast, where we saddle up and ride hell for leather into the blazing six-gun action of the Western genre in books, movies, TV, and any other media at home on the range. I'm your host, Paul Bishop. Joining me today is acclaimed Western wordslinger Randy Samuelson-Brown. Known for her award-nominated and compelling historical fiction centered in the Old West, she has now engaged her passion for storytelling to paint an unflinching portrait of the seedy underbelly of the modern-day West in her new neo-noir Western series, Dark Range. The first book in the series, Brand Chaser, features Emery Cross, a young and tough no-nonsense brand inspector in the modern-day commercial world of Colorado's cattle country. Emery is intent on preserving her family ranch's traditional way of life in Colorado at all costs, even if it means crossing some lines. Randy was born in Denver, Colorado, and grew up in Golden. She has always enjoyed uncovering strange and obscure historical facts and details, with frontier fiction and the shadier aspects of the Wild West always holding a place close to her heart. Market Street Madam was her debut novel, where their first nonfiction book, The Bad Old Days of Colorado, untold stories of the Wild West being a finalist in the 2021 Colorado Book Awards history category. Hey, friend. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate it. I've been looking forward to doing this interview with you because all transparency here, I'm the editor of your new series, Dark Range. The first book, Brand Chaser, is something I'm really excited about. It's available now, and I want to encourage everybody to read it because it's so different than so much else out there in the Western genre today. When we first started talking about Brand Chaser, it was at the Western Writers of America convention a couple of years ago. What did you first think about when we talked about doing a new series? First of all, I was scared because I hadn't done a contemporary Western, and so that's a totally different mindset. I was like, oh, I have things to say, but how do I want to say it? What could I do that was different than what had been done before? Because you and I spoke and we decided it would need to be some sort of law enforcement angle, perhaps. And I was like, oh, I know nothing about that. So I twisted it around towards brand inspectors, which I also didn't know that much about. But somehow that felt more comfortable for me. I'm very glad for the opportunity, and I'm glad that I agreed to do it, and it's been a blast. You adapted to it, I think, when you came up with the idea of the brand inspector. We've never seen a character before that's like this. And when you make it a female brand inspector, Emery's got a tough life. Where did that come from? I don't know, which sounds like a really strange thing to say. It's weird. What I've noticed is when I start buying books that I consider obscure and I don't really know why I'm buying them, I think it's usually my subconscious talking to me. So about four years ago, I started buying Colorado brand books when I could find them. And I was like, I have no idea why I'm buying these. Then Wolfpack came along, and I'm like, I like brands. I know how to read brands, and so here we go. <laughs> it was a bit of a surprise to me that night when I spoke with you. I remember I didn't sleep that great that night because I'm like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And Brand Inspector just really spoke to me. I want to get back to the Dark Range series, which is really a title that we came up with as we began to look at the type of book that you were writing. But let me first talk about some of your other works, especially a novella that you did for the Librarians of the West collection. 
You have a story in there that's pretty amazing called Too Much Dancing Going On. It's an account of an independent-minded young woman in wide open Montana who loves books and horses and later a certain literary young man. One of the things I have to tell you about this story is you had sent it into Wolfpack and we were going to use it as part of your promotion. I had sent it to another editor and we were having a meeting that day for all the Wolfpack personnel, a virtual meeting, and that editor was late. And they got in there about five minutes late and he said, I'm sorry I'm late. I had to finish too much dancing going on. It was just terrific. And I thought, wow, that really speaks to how well written that was. Oh, thank you. That was another strange one where just an opportunity came. Did I want to write a story about a librarian? (laughs) And I was thinking, (laughs) I don't really know any librarian stories. So I started doing a bit of research and I found this old letter written by a miner up in Montana, which is why it was said in Montana. It was an article he sent to the newspaper saying they needed a library because the last winter was long and apparently a little bit out of control. And he claimed if they had a library, they could read and do something literary because otherwise there was just too much dancing going on. And I thought that was hysterical. And I really wondered if it was just dancing they were talking about. Or was it a euphemism? I think it was a euphemism, but in the mining camps, people really love dancing. I think they love music and I see how it could happen. And so then I just started doing research about lyceums and what library reading material was available. A lot of the old mining cabins used to be wallpapered with old newspapers. So that's an angle in the story. But just got one review out on Goodreads and somebody really didn't like the title. They didn't like the framing of the story, all that type of thing. And I was like, wow, I like that story. But I think I actually like more the horse riding in the story than some of the other elements. So there you go. (laughs) You can't please everybody, can you? No, you can't. It's funny. There is a long history, though, of women librarians in the West who would ride miles and miles taking books to these out-of-the-way places. It really is a fascinating aspect of Western history that hasn't got a lot of attention. No, it really hasn't. A lot of women's contributions were overlooked, or they just didn't claim the same space. I don't think people of the time were any less grateful somehow in hindsight, some of these things have gotten a little bit obscured. So when that opportunity came along, I got a new appreciation for a lot of the work that went into setting up libraries or providing reading material or trying to help literacy or education, really just how difficult life could be at times. I recently had an interesting conversation with another friend regarding women on the frontier. The general view is women on the frontier had a really tough life and they were repressed and made targets. You were either a housewife of some kind or you were a soiled dove. There wasn't much choices there. My friend was saying that was really a fallacy. Those types of situations existed. But the women that came West were of a really independent mind and they came West because of the repression in the East. When they came West, they were able to live the lives they wanted to live. And I found that fascinating because it goes against the grain of everything else that's drilled into us. And I totally agree with that. That is one of my premises when I'm starting out, whether it's nonfiction or fiction. I sincerely believe that out in the Western part of the United States, you could do what you wanted as a female. 
I know of real estate agents that were female in the 1880s, and they were very successful. I know women who started bakeries, of women who started laundry, some more traditional female roles, but everybody's individual story is about as varied as individual stories are today. But it's just a fascinating period of time. Now there's starting to be some really good research done on women homesteaders. So like at the turn of the last century, a lot of women homesteaded on their own. A lot of times they were school teachers during the school year, and then they would prove up their claim during the summers. But that's all fascinating. And that's really saying a lot for women's confidence and their ability to survive in the wild. Women who were of a business mind couldn't run businesses back east. If they came west and brought that business acumen with them, nobody cared that they were a woman. They just wanted the business that they could provide, whether it be a dry goods store or, as you said, a laundry or a bakery or whatever it may be. There were women newspaper editors. And it didn't seem to be a big thing in the west as much as it was repressive back east. I hate to say it this way, but I don't really think we had the manners in a way that they had in the East. Whatever your economic or educational background was, it all seemed to be very stratified, that it needed to be within these boundaries. And once you came West, there just weren't enough people, like you said, to worry about upholding like false boundaries, like just do what you can do and do your best to survive and do the best you can. And I just think that's freeing, really. When you get away from the repressive demands or expectations of society, whether it be caste system or, as you said, manners, we have to do things this way, we have to wear our clothes this way, because somebody has come up with this rule that this is the way it's always been done, and we have to always do that. When survival is concerned, on the prairie or on the frontier, those things are the first to go out the window, and it comes down to who's best at doing whatever the job is. Exactly. When I'm looking at younger people today, their frame of reference is different. And in a way, it's more genuine because they're just about being themselves. What I would recognize as convention, they're just not buying into it. So there. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. You told me before you started Brand Chaser, you didn't know anything about brand inspectors. And before you wrote the book about the female librarian, you didn't know anything about librarians. Now, please tell me that when you started Market Street Madam, which is the story of Anne Ryan, a woman who's running a second-rate brothel, that you didn't know anything about that either. I did, because (laughs) I know some of Annie Ryan's ancestors, and that's how I started hearing those stories. And I just thought it was so fascinating, because we didn't have, as far as I know, anybody like that in our family. And I just thought, wow, that is the best. My family was looking boring by comparison. But what's really been interesting about them is they did have children and families that spread out and all of that. And a lot of them don't know each other just for whatever circumstance. So I knew the group I knew. And then I'd start getting emails or contacts from other people saying, are you one of our family? And I've been able to get some of the Ryan descendants like acquainted with each other. I'm like, no, but here's their emails. And I just find that really a fascinating thing that 100 years later, you can help people connect. So like you're their own Ancestry.com sort of thing. Apparently, because I wrote that book, which is just funny. I never saw that one coming. (laughs) In the book, you really do take on some gray areas. We see things sometimes in black and white when it comes to women who run brothels and these types of things. 
But in the reality of the everyday world, this was a lot different. Yeah. What do you do if you're female and you don't really have, I guess for lack of a better term, pleasant alternatives, but you're really business-minded? How do you capitalize on it? How do you provide for a family? Do you care if your circumstances are so rough? What is your concept of family at that point? If there isn't a family to take care of you, and maybe you have a family of your own to care for, then the choices become a lot easier. They do. Even if they're bad choices. Yep. I sometimes try to put myself into the books going, if I was there, what would I do? Or what would I think? Or how would this affect me? Or how even do I think it really went? Because I don't believe some of the harsh writings or portrayals I've seen of prostitutes one way or another. I think perhaps there was a bit more of a middle ground (laughs) within the prostitutes institution hierarchy. And I think a lot of times men writing about female prostitutes, I find that does tend to sometimes set my teeth on edge because I don't think they understand women like women understand women. We got a bit of a disconnect going. So I think as a female writing about that, I think it came across in my mind a little bit better. So, Did you feel you had a responsibility to show that change? Yes, definitely. Because what I noticed when I'm dealing with like Western writers, just as a group, or movie watchers, there's this mindset when you see a prostitute, you're like, huh, if you're a guy. And I'm thinking, why is she being a prostitute? What are the circumstances that led her to that point? Exactly. Stereotypically, a guy seeing a conquest or somebody lesser than, or somebody you can just buy and discard. I mean, Who is that person? And their past histories are so strange because they would change their name. They'd shave years off of their ages. They'd switch towns so that they were literally fresh meat again. So all their individuality would get lost. Plus, they never wanted their family back east to know what they were doing. So they did their best to hide it. So it's like a mystery group. It is a rough life. It is a demeaning life. You have to have a strong heart and a strong mind to be able to survive that. That's a harder life than many men were faced with. Yeah, it really was. It's an abusive life. There is a lot of drugs and alcohol. A lot of women killed themselves. Suicide was very prevalent. I don't think it was a happy life at all. But I think if you were mathematically inclined, you didn't get addicted to alcohol or drugs and you could handle money and you became a madam, okay, you're surrounded by it forever, but you wouldn't starve. You'd have a roof over your head. You knew what you were doing. And you could do more than lay on your back at that point. Yeah, totally. To put it bluntly. Yep. With writing that first novel, had you done a certain amount of writing prior to that before you dug into actually writing a novel? I've written one novel that hasn't gotten published ever. It was about World War I and a disfigured World War I vet. And I went to school in Ireland at Trinity College in Dublin, and I was a history major, so I've always had to write papers. And that was my first attempt at a novel. And I think it did pretty well, like it would go up to acquisition boards, and then it would come crashing down. But yes, I've always written, I think one of my earliest things, I wrote a covered wagon story of some variety when I was like five years old, when I could barely write that type (laughs) of thing. So it's always been lurking in the background. And I've always been fascinated with the West and the stories, because my dad was such a great storyteller when we'd be driving around that it was like impossible not to be interested. Was that first novel a testing ground, a learning ground for you? 
definitely. I thought I wrote, this sounds so stupid, but I thought I wrote well, but I hadn't written in years. And then I sat down to write and it was awful. (laughs) I mean, I could even see it was awful. It was the most frustrating thing. And I'm like, this is terrible. So I would just keep working on it. And I signed up for courses. At the time we were living out in Los Angeles, my husband was working out there. So I was taking some courses at UCLA, just trying to get like the writing muscle developed and back into shape. It was a very hard book to write. It was very upsetting. It was also in a different country. So all of a sudden, when you bring things back to the West or you bring things back to Colorado, I'm like in home territory, which lightens the load tremendously when I know who to ask and talk to if I need something. So the Market Street Man just rolled off the pen. It was easy, comparatively speaking. You've also dabbled in nonfiction, and I say dabbled, that's probably a bad term. You've written nonfiction, The Bad Old Days of Colorado. Tell me about how that came about. I was at the Western Writers of America up in Billings, and I was being a smart aleck, and I can't remember what I was doing. But Erin Turner, who was the acquisitions editor at the time, heard me talking, and she just turned around, and she said, who are you, and where are you from? And I'm like, oh, my name's Randy. I'm from Colorado. We used to be bad and are proud of it. And she just started laughing. And she's, are you going to write nonfiction at all or do you? And I'm like, oh, I was a history major. I can't. She's like, write me up a proposal and send it to me. And I did and she bought it. So honestly, I had never really intended on writing nonfiction, but there I went. And she was the acquisitions editor for what company? Two Dot. Yep. So was that book before your novel or after? After. And you felt comfortable bringing together all of those stories about how bad things used to be? Yes, I did. Because like I said, I was a history major. My dad told me stories. And I'd done a lot of research for Market Street Madam and the prostitution and that type of thing. And every time you start really doing deep research, you find other interesting threads. And it's like a rabbit going down a hole. You just start (laughs) getting deeper and deeper in. It was wild, but I've learned a couple of important lessons, I think, for me as a person in that if I'm writing a book, it's best if I stick to the West and especially if I stick to Colorado, because I really do know what I'm talking about. I do have the contacts and and that's like my home territory, as it were. With Market Street Madam and the nonfiction book, there's a lot of darkness in those things. Did you bring that consciously to the new series with Brand Chaser, the Dark Range series? I've had a lot of people comment on this who've read my work and who know me, and they're like, you seem really well adjusted. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> think, little do they know. Yeah, and, and they're like, then we read what you write, and it's so dark. And then you're sitting here laughing, and they have trouble reconciling it. I guess I look at things more in a dark way, which is really interesting. But it's ever really a conscious thing that I'm like digging around for the scary stuff. I had a very G rated upbringing, a <laughs> nice family people who wonder why the heck I write the way I do. My mother's cousins took me out to dinner prior to COVID and they're like, we just want to ask you one thing. And it's, what's that? And they're like, why? I don't know exactly. It just seems to need to be told. And they look appalled, but you know, they're nice people. They're just, they're pretty religious and they're just wondering like what happened to me. So (laughs) it's pretty funny. Life is life, right? Yep. When we were talking about the Dark Range series and you were talking about, okay, we're going to make this a female brand inspector and her name's Emery Cross. And we began to talk about the aspects of the series. And I think I pushed you a little bit to make this more noirish than some of your other work might have been. 
And you took that by the horns, so to speak, being a brand inspector as a main <laughs> character, and twisted that a little bit to the point where we see that Emery Cross and her father and the other people that are around her, they're not all bad and they're not all good. There's these really shades of gray. There's bad things going on. And what fascinated me about the book is where those lines become crossed. Where does it become really bad? Where does somebody take a stand and be really good? And I think you captured that with this character. I think it's fascinating when we look at lines and crossing lines. And I think that's always been a theme <laughs> in my life. I remember crossing lines with my parents when you just know, ooh, I just crossed a line there. And they would say, you just crossed a line. But what does that actually mean? Where is the line? What is it? Studying cattle wrestling in northwestern Colorado, what I did find was really interesting in this range called Browns Park. Everybody stole cattle from their neighbors and they'd butcher it and eat it. So it was like a known fact you never ate your own beef was a saying up there. And there was a line to where everybody accepted to practice, but you could cross that line. And where was that line? And what was seen as really appalling and what was seen as local custom? What was seen as stealing a cow to feed your family or stealing cows to make profit from it. Right. And that's where you start getting into the whole gray area. And it seemed to be considered if you're a small rancher at that time, not today, but it would be seen as okay to steal from the large outfit for various reasons. And the large outfits did their best to squash the small ranchers. And it was never really a true range war, but I'd say there was a range war simmering right underneath the surface. It just never got totally declared like it did in Wyoming. The Amazon.com of cattle companies wiping out all of the little cattle companies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it just didn't matter. Maybe people think that of Amazon. It doesn't matter if I take a couple of things from Amazon or don't pay right or return it or whatever, because they're so huge. But it does matter if I screw over like the small independent store three doors down. It's that type of thing. It's this weird justification that we have as human beings. They're big. They're not going to notice it. I'm going to report extra stuff stolen from my house in the burglary because the insurance company can afford it. Yeah. Justification. I had an FBI agent tell me once, the second somebody starts to justify a crime, it's as good as committed Probably because they true. just continue to lead themselves down that path. I'm willing to believe that. And I think that happened a lot out here, especially with growing herds. And that's a term. And it's basically like if you could find maverick calves like Emery does, who's to say who they belong to? And a lot of the big cattle producers really stacked it against the small ranchers. So if you could just put a brand on it, you just got two more head. Could be yours, may not be, likely it isn't, that type of thing. It's that gray area again. Yeah. With Emery, it's not just the stuff that's going on in her professional life that is getting into those gray areas. It's also dealing with her father, who's a real curmudgeon at times, yet there's still this familiar feel. They do love one another underneath all of the aggravation. Yeah. 
I think so. A lot of girls have that relationship with their father. If your father's a stronger man and they have their own way of doing things and you're coming up and you're trying to help the family code or whatever. But then on the other hand, you got other stuff you want to do. So it's always interesting, like trying to deal with dads. And so some of elements of my father, not like stealing anything or shooting people, but like I can see elements of Lance Cross and my father. The thing with Emery is she's doing stuff her father feels challenged by. Yes. Things that he would traditionally see as male stuff. She's doing it, and she really doesn't need his help to do it, and that bothers him. Yeah. That's like the changing of the guard. Like how when people sometimes get older, it's the next generation coming up that's really going to be running things at a certain point. And I think that's what Emery is really doing. She's like on his heels. She'll be the next one who takes over. And they basically have some different ideas about how things need to go. With writing this series, now you've already completed the second book in the series, which is Branded Graves. Has the experience of writing a series changed the way you write? No. (laughs) Okay. That's probably a bad answer. Um, Does it change the way I write? I have to think in a longer time frame. I have to think there's no clear ending, right? So if you're doing a series, you're starting out, then it's gets to a point, then you're picking it up and it goes to another point. So that's really quite a long time frame. And there's a lot that can happen in a series where in one single book, it's more condensed, I guess, what is what I'd notice. When I first started out writing, I had really trouble doing series because my main character would change so much from the beginning of the story to the end of the story that they would be, quite frankly, different. And to go on with another book with that character would have been hard for me. I had to, as you say, think long form and think, okay, where's the character at the end of this first book? Where's the character going to be at the end of the second book? And I, I had to do this even before I started writing that first book because I knew I needed to spread the character arc out over right. several books. Stories are individual, but the character arc has to continue on. And that's the thing with character arcs. If you're writing anything and your character doesn't change, if they don't grow, learn something, you've got a very one-dimensional and flat character that probably people might read once, but they certainly don't want to stick around with them. So it's always a challenge just to make the person realistic. Have changes. I change. I can see myself change. It's like sometimes my opinions radically change when I've learned something or something's happened. So it's just keeping all of that going. That's a modern day change in the way readers approach series. Back in the day, Mike Hammer was Mike Hammer in whatever book you picked up. He wasn't affected by really anything that went on during the previous novel. Today, readers expect their characters to have that depth of being affected by what happens to them in a book. Oh, I think so, yeah. Because otherwise, I do read classic westerns, and I just read one of Zane Gray's, maybe it was Louis Moore's, whatever. Their characters are good, but they're predictable. And I have this feeling I could pick up number 32 out of whatever they've written. And I don't know how much difference I would really expect to see. The circumstances and the settings would be different, but people's core values would be the same or their actions would be the same or the good guys might have some flaws. They're the good guys and they're going to fight like hell for whatever they believe in and the bad guys are going to do the same and it's all going to resolve itself. I don't think real life really goes that way all the time. So I'm just trying to make it more realistic and life as I recognize it. 
back in the day, publishers were responsible for a lot of that sameness because they felt their audience wanted the same thing over and over again. Okay, we're on to a good thing here. Why change it? And I do believe in today's society, that has even changed at the publisher's level. They want books that are character-driven, that the characters take the readers on a journey with them. They feel part of the character's life. You don't really feel part of Mike Hammer's life. Right. You're watching him from a distance. But with characters today, readers like to feel closer to them. Flaws and all. Life can be very difficult. There's shades of gray. Maybe everybody always thinks that back in 1950, everything was so perfect. And I, but was it? I don't know. I wasn't alive. But did they always really want to read that the good guy wins all the time? I guess that'd be comforting in a way, but it's just not realistic. That's why noir took off in the 50s, because there were people out there who knew life wasn't idyllic. They identified more with the noir characters on the screen than they did with the white picket fence and the you know tire swing hanging in the tree. Right. There's always going to be noir people out there who identify with the fringes of life. And I've heard this said so many times, and I think it's true for reading, art, whatever. People are looking into an art form and they want to see themselves in it. For me as a female, if I read some of these like 1950s books, I don't see myself in those. So I want to create something where I can see myself and people like me want to see themselves. Otherwise, there's no connection. Sometimes when people say, why are we doing minority stuff or that whole thorny topic? But people are different and they want to see themselves. So it's just very interesting. 1950s, Leave it to Beaver just doesn't fit the whole world. Not anymore, that's for sure. Yep. Randy, there's the clanging of the chuck wagon triangle telling me it's time to wrap up this episode with some shootouts and shoutouts. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with me today, and I'm really looking forward to readers getting a chance to dig into Brand Chaser and the other books in the Dark Range series. Thank you very much for having me, Paul. It was fun. We'll talk again soon. Okay, thank you. Thanks to our Six Gun Justice Patreon subscribers for their one-time or monthly support. If you are so inclined, you can help cover the cost of the podcast by using the button at the top of our website, sixgunjustice.com. Prior Six Gun Justice podcast episodes continue to be available on all major podcast streaming platforms. Until we meet again, be kind to each other, be kind to yourself, and may all your trails be happy. Adios for now. I'm out of here. Let's ride. <laughs>